Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hi, I'm Mina Kim. And I'm Alexis Madrigal, and this is Forum and Focus, a show where we bring you the most compelling conversations that we recorded live on our radio show forum on KQED in San Francisco. This week, I talked with State Attorney General Rob Bonta. You know, how different is it for you, Mina, preparing to, like, interview Rob Bonta versus, like, a California novelist? Well, one of the things that's really hard is that you can pull from a universe of different things, right? Which is where production support, Susie Britton produced this one, is so critical. She's able to put boundaries on the universe of things that we could talk about with him because there's a whole range. And we did do the range. I mean, we talked about the latest news all the way to how he is, you know, going after Facebook and Instagram, how he's going after big oil companies and all also yeah. how he's going after small school districts. And so that that's how the preparation is different, but right? You, you have to start with a much bigger umbrella than what's contained in a book. I feel like when I'm interviewing a mayor, which is like kind of equivalent on the nine o'clock hour, I have to like put on my armor. I have to like get my stuff ready to have a different kind of interaction because I think when we have public officials on, it's incumbent on us to like hold them to account in a, in a slightly different way than like an artist or just you know a person. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm a very different interviewer whenever I interview um, an elected official. I, I don't mean to be, but you're a stand-in for the public. Yeah, totally. You know, I had Heather Cox Richardson, who has two million subscribers to her newsletter. Just her alone. She's the only one who produced it. Two million people want to read her thoughts. And it's basically a historically informed take on current events. And so she's got a new book out called Democracy Awakening that's basically like how to understand the rise of authoritarianism, particularly within the United States, particularly as a threat to our democracy. And we kind of go through it. you know. We, well, we, what we, I loved yeah. about your conversation with her is it hit on exactly what I'm worried about, which is just this incredible disdain, it feels like, these days for democratic institutions, for mm-hmm. government officials and their regulations and policies, and for the expertise that they have. Totally. Absolutely right. And, you know, she herself is just such a wild expert, you know, before and after the show and during the show. You know, could, you could ask her literally anything about a year or a political figure or a movement, and she'd be like... Well, you know what's interesting in this document from this time and that time. Well, I am 100% with you. I love me some historical context. <laughs> Always. Yeah. It's, so never, it's never a bad idea, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's listen to that conversation with Heather Cox Richardson. Heather Cox Richardson is the author of many books on American history, focusing especially on the Republican Party and the post-Civil War era we call Reconstruction. More recently, she's become the rare historian with a huge popular following. 
as more than 2 million subscribers to her newsletter can attest. Her new book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, a work that traces two competing impulses in our political history, a hierarchical domination-based ideology that says some people are better than others and should rule, and one that's inscribed in our Declaration of Independence, where everyone is equal before the law, and we all deserve a say in choosing our government. It's an incredible primer on the threads of American political history that are most relevant to our age, and we are delighted to have Heather Cox Richardson here with us this morning. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. So your newsletter and the book both offer this historical lens on American politics and current events, and a lot of ink has clearly been spilled about how we got to this place where the leader of the Republican Party is Donald Trump. Where do you locate the starting point for how we got here? Like, how deep are these roots? Well, there are two ways to answer that. The the roots of the idea that some people are better than others and have the right and maybe the duty to rule go all the way back to the first time that a European dropped anchor off of the North, North American continent. But the question of how we got to a moment in which Donald Trump is the presumptive front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination for president actually, I think, is an attempt to overturn the New Deal government that the Democrats began to put in place. Place in 1933, and that was really the concept of government that, under which we've lived be, between 1933 until the present, uh, although it came under attack beginning in 1981. And so the idea of destroying that government, taking a government that the Democrats and later on the Republicans primarily under Dwight Eisenhower constructed to regulate business, to provide a basic social safety net, to promote infrastructure, and to protect civil rights, especially in the state. The idea of overturning that government really gets its teeth in 1937 after FDR wins his second uh, presidential election. And, you know, a lot of people thought when he got into office, was elected in 1932, that it was a flash in the pan, that he was going to disappear and we would go back to the kind of government we had in the 1920s. When he wins again in 1936, a lot of people who didn't like his system decide to come together and to fight back against it. And they actually wrote a document called the Conservative Manifesto in 1937, mm -hmm. in which Republicans who hated business regulation came together with uh, right-wing Democrats, primarily in the American South, who didn't like the fact the New Deal was beginning to push back against racial segregation. And they put together a document that was very, very brief. It gets leaked to the press and everybody runs away from it like little mice. But the document said that a government should never regulate business because that stood in the way of a man, because they were men in this period, of a man concentrating his wealth and figuring out how to run his businesses. So it, this would be bad for society. The government should never get involved in basic social safety legislation because that belonged to the churches. The government should not get involved in infrastructure because that would be done more efficiently by private enterprise and the money would then be returned to the, the private sector. And finally, it absolutely should not get involved in civil rights. They called for something called home rule that meant that Southern states could arrange their racial issues however they wanted. And the reason that that, that is such a focus, I think, for, for me in my work and in this book is that doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> it sure does. I, it's interesting, though, because, of course, the New Deal was extremely popular, though, right? So then the question becomes, how do you get to the point where those that itemization of things has become you know, mostly our lived reality? Isn't that astonishing? 
So um, the answer to that is that those people who believed that, who wanted to push back against that, as you say, very popular idea, an idea that comes to be known as the liberal consensus coming out of World War II, the idea that this is what a government should do, these, these, it should operate in these four areas. People disagreed about what that meant, how far one should go with social welfare legislation, for example, how extensive government regulation should be. But Republicans and Democrats both believed that that's what the government should do. Mm-hmm. So people who disagreed with that had a real problem because they kept trying to get people to go back to the 1920s government that people looked at and said, wait a minute, that took us into the Depression. We don't want any part of that, right? We remember old ladies eating out of trash cans, and we remember living in packing boxes. We don't want any part of that. So they begin fairly early on, by the 1950s, to start to articulate the idea that we should no longer have a political discourse that's based in reality. We should no longer go forward to voters and say, listen, this is why you should vote for me. Instead, they should start from the premise that government should be Christian, and it should promote um what they call free enterprise or individualism. Mm -hmm. And they insisted on starting from that premise. And again, that really didn't go very far. There's a famous book written in 1951, God and Man at Yale or the Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William F. Buckley Jr. Mm -hmm. There's a follow-up book in 1954 saying uh, that, in fact, McCarthy was right. It's called McCarthy and His Enemies, saying that McCarthy was right and that this new kind of government was essentially inviting socialism or even communism into the United States. Mm-hmm. And people standing against it were capital C conservatives in that they wanted to go back to the days before the New Deal. And everybody who accepted the New Deal government was a capital L liberal. Didn't take off very very much at all because people, again, liked the fact that they had a really high GDP. They had great jobs. They had you know these fancy cars. They had houses. They had all sorts of things that were just pipe dreams during the Depression. But then we get something very important in 1954. And in May of 1954, we get the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And with that decision of the Supreme Court, a unanimous decision, by the way, under a Supreme Court justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren, who had been the governor of California, who was appointed by Eisenhower, a Republican. With that decision, those people who hated this liberal consensus were able to say to voters, hey, wait a minute. You liked that government when it was protecting your economic interests, for example. But we always told you that if you had a government that did these things, pretty soon it was going to be giving minority Americans, but in this period they're looking primarily at black Americans, we always told you it was going to to use the government to give advantages to black Americans that white Americans don't have. And look, by 1957, you have Eisenhower sending in the troops to Little Rock Central High School to integrate the, the high school on the basis of Brown versus Board. Look, that's tax dollars that the government is using to bring integration to a southern state or what they define as a southern state. And what they begin to argue is something that reaches back to Reconstruction, in which they say, we always told you that a government that did these things was essentially socialism. Because look, it's using taxes to redistribute tax dollars paid for by white people into benefits for black and brown people. Therefore, it is a form of socialism. Therefore, it is destroying America. And therefore, you must stand against it. And that marriage of race and money 
in, you know, drawing from a much earlier period, but in the 1950s, is the wedge that is going to split that liberal consensus wide open. Right. I mean, we came to call this, right, the Southern strategy, right? In your in your book, you uh, quote LBJ on the topic, you know, if, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. How do you see that strategy evolving through time? So the Southern strategy is what Nixon picks up in in 1968, but it actually comes, really develops in 1964 when uh, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater gets the Republican nomination because the frontrunner for the Republican nomination crashes and burns because of an extramarital affair, right? So Goldwater gets the nomination, and he gets it on the basis of a document that is written, ghostwritten by the same man who wrote, um, co-wrote, God, I'm sorry, um, McCarthy and his enemies in 1954. And that's L. Brent Bazell, who's a brother-in-law to William F. Buckley Jr. Aren't historians like just, you know. <laughs> that must, you know, that's a one of those connections that historians, I feel like, love to find. Totally, you know? yeah. totally. Because um, you can sort of see their fingerprints, right? Yeah. And I have no uh, proof of this. this. I should start with that. But I have always suspected that when Bazell wrote... Uh, the conscience of a conservative, he had that conservative manifesto in front of him because the points are almost hmm. exactly the same. Hmm. Um, the, and again, just because you look for fingerprints and, mm-hmm. and, and it might just be chance, but I've always thought that was interesting. Anyway, in 1960, he uh, Bazell writes a book that is ghostwritten for Barry Goldwater. It's called The Conscience of a Conservative. And what it calls for is the rollback of the government to the government the way it looked in the 1920s, including getting rid of things like Brown versus Board of Education. So when Goldwater is nominated for the Republican national um, uh, uh candidacy for the yeah. Republican Party and for President 64, here in the Cow Palace, by the way, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, he is put over the top for that nomination by delegates from South Carolina because he is picking up the racist Southern Dixiecrats at this point, they're called, who don't want integration, who don't want to challenge what they consider um, home rule or white supremacy in the American South. So he, of course, crashes and burns in 64. He gets his home state of Arizona, but he gets five deep southern states. And quite dramatically, Strom Thurmond from South Carolina switches very publicly from supporting the Democrats and the Dixiecrats to becoming a Republican. Mm. Then 65, we get the Voting Rights Act. And both parties have to decide if they're going to integrate people of color into their coalitions or not. And it's not clear what's going to happen after that. It's pretty clear what the Democrats are going to do because LBJ is in office. And, of course, he pushed the Voting Rights Act and he pushed the Civil Rights Act of 64. And he talks a lot about his legacy in American race. But what are the Democrats going to – I'm sorry, the Republicans going to do because they are traditionally the party of civil rights, traditionally. And that's when Nixon picks up the Southern strategy and he goes to Strom Thurmond and he says, if you stay with the Republicans, we will stop pushing – for the federal government to enforce civil Mm. rights in the states. With that Southern strategy, that strand of DNA embeds itself in the Republican Party. And by 1980, you've got got, um, uh, Ronald Reagan really hitting the idea of the welfare queen, a black woman who uses um, 
us welfare cards and dead husbands to collect benefits she is not entitled to. She was a real person. She was a criminal, by the way. That's not the way the welfare system in general worked. <laughs> and that idea of minorities taking advantage of the social welfare system at the expense of white taxpayers then becomes the Willie Horton ads, then becomes, yeah. you know, we can go And taps on from into there. these deep veins of uh, American thought. That's just a bit of Alexis's conversation. Go back and check out the full interview with Heather Cox Richardson on your favorite podcast app. Just search KQED Forum Cox Richardson. And don't go anywhere. Forum and Focus back in a minute with Nina's interview with Attorney General Rob Bonta. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rob Bonta, Attorney General of the state of California. He took office in 2021 after being appointed by Governor Newsom when former AG Javier Becerra left the position to become Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services for President Biden. Before becoming AG, Bonta was an assembly member representing Oakland, Alameda, and San Leandro. And you, our listeners, are joining our conversation with Attorney General Bonta. I'd like to ask you about how your office is actually handling police violence now. Last week, you announced you would not be charging the four Anaheim police officers who shot and killed Brandon Lopez in 2021. Officers shot Lopez 18 times, according to the report from your office, and they believed officers said that what was a gun was actually a black drawstring bag containing a water bottle. Why did you decide not to bring charges against these officers or find them criminally liable. Let me first say that uh, under AB 1506, a, a bill that I was the co-author of when I was in the California State Legislature, it requires that the California Attorney General conduct investigations and make uh, prosecution decisions on officer-involved shootings that lead to the death of an unarmed Californian. And this was a, a qualifying incident here uh, with Mr. Lopez. And so we conducted a, a deep investigation of the case. We were... Um, um, pr- present um, for um, uh, talking to witnesses and uh, developing evidence and collecting evidence, looking at the video, body cam footage, and we have to make it had to make a determination based on the existing facts and law about whether uh, a prosecution for homicide was something that we could um, pursue and successfully prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And part of what we had to well, part of our burden was to um, prove that there was. Uh, no uh, self-defense defense that could be um, um, 
used uh, by by the defendants in this case, and that was something we could not overcome based on the facts and the law. There was a, in this case, there was an early uh, observation ended up being wrong, but it was in the minds of all of the law enforcement officers on scene that uh, Mr. Lopez had a gun, and when Mr. Lopez exited the vehicle, he um, was um, running in one direction and then immediately turned and ran directly towards the law enforcement officers. So you have an individual who is uh, running at and toward law enforcement officers who the law enforcement officers believe to have a gun. And so we um, determined uh, that we could not overcome a self-defense uh, defense in this case and, and not meet our burden. And so that's why we decided uh, appropriate under the facts and law not to prosecute. Uh, we also provided quite a few uh, recommendations for tactical changes um, that we believe could uh, help um, avoid such a situation in the, in the past and may have, if done differently, avoided the situation here. And that's part of our duty under AB 1506 to provide guidance on uh, better tactics like uh, de-escalation, um, use of force, use of body cameras, etc. So you're saying the facts were not there, even though you did make some strong recommendations for changes at the department. One of the things, though, that Brandon Lopez's mother, Joanna, who was quoted in the Voice of OC, as saying was that the investigation took so long and that it delayed their ability to push for civil remedies in the courts because the invest the police could cite that they were under investigation and not provide information to the public as a result of that. Are you satisfied with the timeline of these types of investigations that your office is conducting? I am dissatisfied with the timeline of these investigations. We are not uh, completing them as fast as I like, and we will change that. Uh, you will see a number of investigations that come to complete resolution with public um, disclosure uh, as we approach the end of this year, uh, multiple before the end of this year, really? and multiple at the end as we turn into the next year. I, I, I feel for the families of those who, um, uh, who have lost loved ones in these incidents and are awaiting our review, who want us to tell them uh, what happened and what the facts and the law dictate here and to also provide um, guidance to the law enforcement agency about how they can do things differently consistent with best practices going forward. Uh, their right to want answers sooner. I want the answers sooner, and I'm pushing um, my team to provide them sooner. It, whenever you start something, um, you are a, a little slower and not as good at the beginning than you are when you've done it 100 times. And so we just stood up our AB 1506 team um, last year. Um, we've been doing it for just over a year. And uh, we want to be thorough. We want to be accurate. We want to be comprehensive. And we want to do it expeditiously. We, you can do both. And so um, going forward, uh, you will see improvements. You will see changes. You will see faster conclusions uh, to our investigations being reported out to the public. How many investigations are currently pending? There's usually about 40 incidents per year historically. Mm. And the exact number, um, I don't believe, is, is that high because um, last year there were actually less than the historical average in terms of qualifying incidents, officer-involved shootings that lead to the death of an armed Californian. Um, so there are certainly many more pending than have been resolved. And uh, we're trying to flip that around so that there are more resolved than pending and that we are getting from beginning to end so from date of incident to date of final report and conclusions being reported out in a year uh, or less consistently. So this is the, the fourth time out of four investigations that the, ta the task force has completed into police 
conduct that police have been cleared of criminal liability. And again, Joanna Lopez sort of questioned the purpose of this task force. And I, I, I think it's a fair question. Why should the public still believe the law that you co-authored has force if it hasn't resulted in any findings of fault? The process is what's important here. And uh, what about the process is important? That an independent entity, the California Department of Justice, conduct the investigation as opposed to the district attorney's office that works every day, appropriately so, with the law enforcement officers that they're investigating. Uh, The public doesn't necessarily trust the latter. They trust the former, meaning the independent investigation. And we, there's no percentage, a right percentage of, of, of how many findings uh, should um, lead to a prosecution of a law enforcement officer or how many shouldn't. The facts and the law will determine it. And we take the facts and the law as they come. Uh, the cases that we've looked at, after looking at the facts and the law, the conclusions have been um, accurately and appropriately what they've been. That, there is, uh, that we cannot pursue a, a criminal case in these instances. At the same time, there are many tactical uh, improvements and changes that could be adopted by the law enforcement agencies, which we, which we have shared. Who knows what the future will hold? I mean, right now, uh, we just got a courtroom for a, a, a case in Riverside County, the Sanchez case, where we are prosecuting an officer uh, uh, for... Uh, criminally uh, killing an individual. So when the facts and the law uh, dictate it, uh, we will pursue it. When they don't, we are ethically um, and duty-bound, ethically obligated and duty-bound to to, to not pursue something that we cannot prove in a court of law based on the facts and the law. Let me go to caller Oscar in Vallejo. Oscar, you're on. Well, this is just incredibly timely because what about Jared Kahn and the Vallejo Police Department and the execution of Sean Monterosa. There is a video of this, the entire incident on the Vallejo Police Department's website. It has been there for three years now. Two years ago, you said you would do something about it, and the people of Vallejo had waited too long. Anybody that's in law enforcement, anybody that's a prosecutor, anybody that knows anything about the criminal justice system who watches that would file charges instantly against the person that fired that that weapon. Oscar, thank you. Attorney General? Uh, thank you for your, your, your comments. I am very aware of the case. We have been doing exactly what we said we would do from the day we said it, which is uh, investigate the case, look at all the evidence, um, interview uh, witnesses who are available to be interviewed, look at the, the, the videos that you've mentioned and other material evidence to be able to make a a decision. This is not uh, an AB fifteen oh six case, by the way. It is an abusive discretion case, which we took, yes. and uh, we are um, soon going to be announcing our decision on that case. We have also uh, taken important steps to um, work with the Vallejo Police Department to get them to adopt and embrace and enact best practices when it comes to constitutional policing. Uh, there has been, uh, in my view, a pattern and practice of, of, of policing in Vallejo that is disturbing and it needs <laughs> great in, uh, improvement. And so we have worked with them uh, on that and we made an announcement as, 
as you may have seen a couple weeks ago, indicating uh, the very important and material and substantial changes that the Vallejo Police Department will be adopting to get on the right track. Yes, your office filed a consent decree with the city of Vallejo last month. And, and I am just curious if you could say in broad strokes, at least, what you are requiring Vallejo to do, given its department's very high rate of police killings and very slow investigations of those incidents. You know, we have a whole menu of best practices that if every law enforcement agency department adopted them, there would be a, in our view, the, 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 a safer community, a community that has more trust in their police departments and law enforcement agencies and constitutional um, uh, police practices that honor the civil rights of the community that they are keeping safe. And so for Vallejo, there were quite a number of areas that needed improvement. Certainly, um, incidents that, uh, of excessive force that led to death, so use of force, uh, reporting, um, arrests, searches, seizures, uh, the policies that, that, that are used for uh, those practices. There, it's a broad variety of sort of top-to-bottom review of practices that, of, for the Vallejo Police Department. Um, also, you know, reporting, oversight, accountability, all important to uh, building that trust back with the, the community in Vallejo where it's been so damaged over the last few years. So if they don't meet your requirements on time, what happens? We have enforcement mechanisms. That's what a consent decree is. It's a court order. Uh, we can go and, and we have a, a monitor who does oversight, who can help ensure that the commitments are, are actually implemented. Uh, we worked with the Vallejo Police Department earlier and made a set of recommendations, not all of which were adopted. So we escalated to a consent decree to ensure that there was a court, a court order in place, a monitor in place, and the ability to go to court to enforce the terms of the consent decree when, when and if necessary. We believe they won't be necessary, but they are, uh, that, that mechanism and that tool is available to us should we need it. I'd like to turn to some of the major civil cases that your office is managing now. The first is your lawsuit against Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram, so on. You are co-leading a group of 33 state attorneys general who are party to an action against Meta. Can you describe what your concerns are, the theory of your case? What is Meta doing in your view? How is it violating laws? In short, Meta is providing a platform that knowingly hurts children, and they are lying about it. Hmm. That's what it is in short. And Meta is a new name for many. Uh, they, they operate Facebook and Instagram, so those, those platforms may be well known to more people. Um, but they have a platform uh, that seeks to maximize the number of engagements uh, uh, by young people and maximize the duration of those engagements. And they know from their own studies and reviews that the impact on children of their platform is depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, body image issues, um, learning loss, lack of sleep, isolation, and they do it anyway. And they use tools uh, which internally they have called addictive, uh, but externally lied about and say they are not addictive. They have things like infinite scroll and autoplay. They have a, a plastic surgery filter that shows what you would look like with plastic surgery. They have likes and popularity metrics that they know are problematic. They have a, an algorithm which they also know uh, is problematic. They have beeps and alerts which go off in, when children are in school and when they're sleeping. And 
um, they know from their own studies, and there's a there is a, um, a mountain of mounting evidence that shows the damage uh, it causes to children, and it doesn't have to be this way. They have made a choice to continue to provide a platform that harms children. And when uh, children are knowingly harmed by adults who know better, and those adults are lying about it, it is my job to step in and hold them accountable, as we've done here with our colleagues from across uh, the nation. And look, this is a multi-state, bipartisan effort. You don't often see that these days. And when you have agreement and coalescing around uh, the, uh, by AGs across the country to protect children in this way, um, I think it sends a, a it, it is a very powerful statement and a powerful message. Meta has said that they're disappointed that the attorneys general have taken this route and that they share your commitment to teen safety online and have already rolled out tools to users and so on. So what are you seeking exactly in terms of, of penalties or... Results. You know, um, we're mostly seeking injunctive relief, meaning change of behavior by the platform. So they don't engage in the practices that they know lead to all of these uh, mental health and some physical health um, uh, challenges for, for children. So we want them to change their practice. For example, what does that look like? Instead of having a, a, an algorithm like they do now, they can have an organic algorithm, which feeds content more organically. Um, they could stop collecting uh, information about children under 13 in violation of, of federal law. We think that one's a, a no-brainer. They, they could do that quickly. Um, and, you know, some of these uh, addictive tools that they use, um, they, could, they could change those practices or um, um, tweak them in certain ways so that we don't have the same um, detrimental outcomes. You can hear so much more on the full episode. Search KQED Forum Rob Bonta on your favorite podcast app. And that is all for Forum in Focus, the week's most compelling conversations in under 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.